Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord and those of you joining us online. Good morning to you also. We are in the book of Acts chapter 15 this morning and if you have your Bibles we will stand in a moment and we will take verses 6 through 21 should be just over two minutes of reading aloud. If you have your Bibles, ready or not, please stand. Beginning in verse 6 of Acts chapter 15. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose us, that by the mouth of the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek Yahweh, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says Yahweh, who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Please be seated. There's a lot there, but I hope it helps as we begin to open it up. The title of this message is The Beloved Paul. I wanted to name it the beloved Jew, but I felt that might be taken the wrong way when you see it posted online. And I'll try to explain that as, we, as I go through this. Paul, he feared that these Judaizers would have ruined the work of the gospel and reversed the gains that he had made up in Antioch. Now, the Judaizers were those Jewish Christians. They were Jews ethnically and religiously who believed that Jesus was indeed their Messiah, the Son of God. And they had a hard time understanding how the Gentiles could also receive their Jewish Messiah without first becoming Jewish. So when Paul was bringing Gentiles into the church based on faith, they objected. And they said, no, no, their salvation is invalid until they become Jewish. And for the men, that meant that they had to be circumcised. That also meant that they would have to go on and obey, uh, honor the Sabbath and the dietary laws, etc. Of course, many of the rabbinical rules would, would make its way into that also. Well, Paul saw that for what it was and went ballistic on it. And they called a council here in Jerusalem to get to the bottom of it. When Paul arrives in Jerusalem... He first gets with Peter, John, and James and sort of finds out where their head is, tells them where his is, and finds out they're in agreement with him. So he kind of goes into this meeting knowing where the leadership is. But there's a multitude here of these uh, Judaizers, again, the Jews that receive Messiah but cannot understand people being saved without becoming Jewish. And this is what the big conflict is about. 
had they won, the Judaizers, then Christianity would have been rendered a sect of Judaism and we would have no Christianity. Paul put the kibosh on that way up in Antioch when Peter and Barnabas began, uh, you know, they're not hanging out with the Gentiles because James sent men up there from Jerusalem and uh, it caused a problem and, and Paul wouldn't let, let them get away with it and thank God for that. It took a lot of guts of, on Paul's part to go to his two friends, Peter and Barnabas, and say, you men are wrong and you should know better and this is unacceptable. And it took a lot of guts on the parts of Peter and Barnabas to say, you are right, and we're going to fix this. So that's some of what's going on. Uh, bad doctrine had attacked the Gentile converts, and this was bad doctrine. And if someone did not do something, then the devil would have won. Christianity, as I mentioned, would have been absorbed into Judaism and become just a mere sect of Judaism. So here we have Christianity outside of Jerusalem, up in Antioch, suffering because of Christianity in Jerusalem. And these lessons for us are this. It is a knockdown, drag-out fight here. It's not this well-choreographed Christian faith that we expect all the time. We, are, we meet with things that make no sense, that are harmful, that are heartbreaking, but they have to be met with nonetheless. And we look to the Bible to learn how to handle these things. This is where the lessons are coming out of this. Uh, God wanted Paul to settle this at Jerusalem. And we know that because Paul writes about it. And I believe the Galatian letter, and I'm going to approach it that way, that uh, was written probably just before the end of this meeting and right before it. Because as, as Paul talks in the Galatian letter, you, you, the, the dots connect very, very easily, actually. But he mentions this. He says, And I went up by revelation, that is to Jerusalem, Galatians 2.2, 2, and communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. And so when he says there, I went up by revelation, he's saying, God led me to go up. God did not say, you know what, these guys are wrong, be done with them. God said, they are wrong and you need to go settle this. And so he goes to Jerusalem and he communicates to them the gospel, the, the, the leaders. He said, listen, this is what I'm preaching. I'm not asking your permission. I'm telling you what I'm preaching. But he also says, Paul, that he met privately, James, John, uh, Peter, and perhaps some others, uh, he says he met with them, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Imagine if you lead someone to Christ, let's just say in the workplace or at school, and then within a few weeks a Jehovah's Witness comes along and seduces them over to the Jehovah's Witness heresy. You would say to yourself, you know, was my work in vain? I still believe what I believe. I'm not backing down, but what a waste. Your faith is not in vain, but your labor would have felt like it was in vain. And that's what Paul was facing. All this work, am, am I going to have to deal with this? Have, have, had, have I brought these people to Christ just to have these other ones come and make everything difficult? And I've got to start back at the beginning? What we can rule out is that Paul, we can rule out that he doubted. He did not doubt his position, his doctrine. We know that, again, from the Galatian letter, when he writes to the churches in that region that he and Barnabas had established churches, he wrote to them about their backing away because Judaizers had made their way there too and started their trouble. And as we talked about last week, don't be them. Don't be that person that comes into a church and starts trouble like these Judaizers did. Well, here we pick it up in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. We get to understand what's going on in Paul's head. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you 
then what you received, let him be accursed. Paul is saying, I don't care what the apostles are saying, I'm an apostle too. And they would be wrong if they tell you you've got to be Jews first. And we covered some of that last week, how that would have upset everything in the Gentile world. Again, imagine telling a convert to Christianity who's a slave, now you have to get circumcised or, or you can't be saved. And then he says, well, if I get circumcised, my masters might kill me for being for be incapable of performing my duties or beat me. I, I can't do that. And Paul, through the Spirit, had the insight to know that the ritual was going away. And we'll get a lot of that this morning. Someone had to do something. And it was this beloved Jewish Christian, Paul. And again, he, he wanted to make sure that they understood his side. And he also wanted to know how much work he had ahead of him. He would go to his grave in conflict with these false ideas and others. They would not go away. They would continuously invade the church to this day. Christians are so quick, and now probably more than ever because of the Internet. They can just go online and find out what somebody else believes and try to drag it into their church and get them to believe it. And in these things, personally, I never read Christian comments on, on the Internet. It just never, I never leave happy. Um, there's so much. Why can't the, ch- the local church just lock it down and be this fierce machine of the gospel? Why does it always have to become bloated? Well, because there's a real devil and there's a real flesh. And Paul did not say, why does it have to be this way? I'm done. He doesn't do that. He stays focused and he continues with his work. And we love him for it. Paul is the beloved Paul to us because he's such a tiger for truth and love. And now we look at verse 6 because there's a lot more to say about what he is doing. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. Well, the apostles held the authority, but Paul is one of them. Uh, God is overseeing this, of course. They're not going to break ranks. They're going to, the apostles are going to stay shoulder to shoulder on this. And uh, Barnabas and Paul will present their position to the other, uh, the multitude of leaders who were the Judaizers. Understanding that Christianity is irreconcilable with everything else. There is no other religion. There's nothing else to add to Christianity. We have no preservatives necessary. There are no soybean, cereal, or meat byproducts that we want to inject into our faith. It is good the way it is. And if you can look at the New Testament and you can say, uh, and God saw that it was good. So here... uh, I would add to that. Christianity is irreconcilable even with the old covenant on many points. And we have to talk about these things. Second Corinthians chapter 3. For what is passing away was glorious. He's talking about the Old Testament, Paul is. What remains is much more glorious. Now he's talking about the New Testament. You know, God called it. This is the God's work of development in the Scripture. It doesn't mean that the Old Testament is less the Word of God. It just means that it is now subject to the New Testament Word of God, all of it being His. And, uh, again, the Galatian letter is, deals with this very thing, as does the Hebrew letter, uh, written at this time. Otherwise, why would Paul leave out what Peter and James concluded? He would have put that in the Galatian letter because it would have been very helpful. So they had to have written it just before uh, this meeting really takes place. Well, verse 7, And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by the mouth of the Gentiles... That by my mouth, pardon me, I think I misread that in the reading also. That by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Well, there's a passionate debate and it lasted for some time. And that's why he says, after much dispute. It's a good thing Peter was there. It's a good thing he is on point, And it's a good thing that he is that natural leader that he was. 
Peter settles the whole thing. James comes and adds to it, but it's done when Peter's finished speaking. Uh, Paul, again, had already dealt with Peter on this very matter. And here, Peter makes the necessary corrections, as found in Galatians 2.11, and advances with the truth. And he does it very gallantly. It's hard to be corrected, is it not? For someone to come and say, you're wrong. And then you find out you are wrong. And then to be able to make corrections and move forward now. A lot of people hold grudges, which is not Christian. Uh, If you're not ready to forgive people, be ready to not be forgiven. That's the teaching of Christ. Uh, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. If you do not forgive men for their sins, your Father in heaven, you're going to have to deal with him. Pretty serious stuff. So uh, all of Christianity is is serious stuff. There was a game that was out years ago called uh, Trivial Christian Pursuit of Something. And in a lighthearted way, I would disagree with that title. There's nothing trivial about Christianity. There's nothing trivial about the New Testament. Uh, a lighthearted way against the game. And if you have the game, I'm not saying go out and burn it. <laughs> Give it to me and I'll do it for you. No, no. Anyway, every time we hear Peter speak in the book of Acts, we are very impressed. I wish that could be said about us and me. I wish I could say that, hey, every time I speak, you know, it's impressive. Uh, It's not realistic. But uh, it is nice to see that about Peter. He is referencing the conversion of Cornelius, the Gentile, uh, and the Jewish witnesses were there to see that happen. So let's develop that. Verse 8. Peter still speaking, so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He's talking about the Gentiles. God saw their faith, not their religion. God is not poised to condemn us. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Psalm 86.5 The psalmist writes, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. That's what makes him good, one of the many things. And abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Well, out of the mouth of Christ himself, John 3, 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might believe, might be saved, he says. And the world is just that. The world. If it were anything else, he would have said so. Uh, it says, continuing in verse 8, acknowledge that uh, God acknowledged these Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit. Well, that should have settled the whole thing. Cornelius was saved and filled with the Holy Spirit and his Gentile family without becoming Jewish. That's the point. They didn't have to climb up steps on their knees. They did not have to put uh, offerings in the box to be saved. They just had to believe in Jesus Christ. And that's what they did. Peter is pointing this out. And so he says, just as he did to us. Peter says, it's a fact. It's a fact that they, were, could, they became Christians without Judaism. By the law comes the knowledge of sin. But the law does not give us the knowledge of salvation from sin. For that, we have to come to the cross. Uh, That's why the sins of the Old Testament are referred to uh, being covered, not removed. And when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that is held in contrast to the rituals of the Jews that only covered the sins. Uh, So our Lord, he he takes them completely away. Verse 9 and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So, proving the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant, we turn to the old covenant so that we learn that this is what God had in mind. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one. Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, when I will make a new testament with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And so Paul writing about this in Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.27, By so much more Jesus has become surety of a better covenant. 
which is the New Testament, a better covenant because it's God's plan. And we Christians need to be clear on this. It's not little stuff. It's not sideline stuff. This is a big part of our doctrine. Do you understand what God was doing when he gave the Jews the Old Testament after the Gentiles were already believers? You say, who? Well, Enoch, Noah. I mean, technically, even though the, the Hebrew line was being established. Then we come to the New Testament and we find out God is right on schedule. And I need to get on that schedule and not the old one. Purifying their hearts by faith. God took his covenant to another level. See, we like to say that when we see someone with an extraordinary skill, right? We say, well, he just took it to another level. Well, God has already done that with his word. When he took it from the Old Testament, that was announcing the coming of the New Testament. When we talk about the rites and rituals, speaking of Christ, that's God announcing that he's got something else coming. And it was perfected in Christ, without diet, without Sabbath, without circumcision. Ephesians 2, we know this verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The arrogant mind says, no, 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 no. I've got to do something. I've got to show how worthy I am And look at me, I've done this, I've got that, and so yeah, I am saved. But the Bible says, no, it is not of works, it is a gift of God. The only work that the Bible teaches that allows us to be employed in our salvation is the surrender of faith. John's Gospel, chapter 6, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him, whom he sent. John chapter 8, 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Well, what is Abraham known for? Faith. Faith, he's the one of unwavering faith. You get to Romans 4, Paul just brings that faith. Abraham did not waver in his faith. Faith, it is a big deal. And if someone tells you, well, we're too depraved to have to even respond to the gospel, say, show me that in the Bible, because it's not there. Uh, I would not be told to come and reason if I could not reason. If I were already elected to be saved, I wouldn't have to reason. If I was not elected, it wouldn't matter if I reasoned. And so you say, well, now you're, you're, you're going at Calvinism. Yep, I am. I, have no, I don't apologize for that. They go at me. It's just that they're wrong, I'm right. And we all know it. And we love me for it. Unfortunately, it ain't that way. Unfortunately, passions run deep and are problematic. And so I think it is the role of the pastor to make his position of, in Scripture very clear to people so no one has to guess. Verse 10, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? Well, primarily, the rabbinical laws overruled the Mosaic laws. The rabbis wrote so many rules to go with the rules that the people were just overwhelmed. And that much of what Peter is talking about has to do with that, but it also includes some of the Old Testament laws. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus speaking, For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear. And lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Many of these Judaizers were Pharisees. All of them were influenced by by Pharisees. And God broke the yoke of the law because grace is better. Hebrews 6. You know, it's interesting. David understood. King David, a man of the law, understood grace in its New Testament form. He just... He just was so far ahead. He could see the character of God. Well, Paul writes again in Hebrews, speaking of Jesus, he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. You're getting the doctrine of no nonsense with false teachings. And you won't find it. If you did doctrine of no nonsense on false teachings, you did a search on that, you wouldn't get, probably wouldn't get anything that was 
in quotations marks, but this is what we're dealing with. Paul is not putting up with nonsense. And he doesn't care. He writes about that in the Galatians. I'm not a respecter of these people. Whoever these pillars were, if they're wrong, they're wrong. And I don't care about their credentials. Uh, I don't go to find out what they believe to find out what I believe. I go to find out what I believe from the Scripture. And when I need help, I will consider what others have come across and have articulated to help me understand what's in front of me. But in the end, I draw my conclusion based on what I understand and not what someone has told me. It's okay if they told you what you understand. Uh, So if you're here and you believe in Jesus Christ because I tell you to believe in Jesus Christ, we have a big problem. You have a big problem. You have to believe in Christ because you know him, because you've been born again, because you've had direct contact with the one who died for you. And it's very easy to get uh, twisted up. Well, verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Peter's still preaching. He's saying the, the same way that Cornelius was saved, same way we Jews are saved. All sinners coming to Christ. Peter left them no room for outward objection. But again, religious passions run deep. And you can prove a person wrong and they won't, get, they won't yield all the time to the facts. They believed if you followed the rules, you earned grace and mercy. That is not New Testament teaching. It's really not even Old Testament teaching. It actually cancels out grace and mercy. It's what David was talking about when he wrote the Psalm 51, you know, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, create in me a clean heart, O God. Uh, It's just powerful, uh, powerful getting down to the facts of God's grace versus my goodness. Uh, I love when David says, remember not the sins of my youth. See, my rituals will not take away the sins of my youth, but your grace and your mercy they will. And, and that's just one of the beautiful parts of that song. True faith, truth, faith, and love go deeper than any religious activity you can come up with. This is the law, that you love one another. That's what Jesus said. You want me, want me to condense all the law into a sentence? Love the Father, love each other. 1 Corinthians 3.13 And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Well, you cannot have that kind of love that profits you unless you have a love for the Lord, who he is, what he says. Uh, You can have, there are other types of love, but that is the agape love that can only come from heaven and a relationship with Christ. And we are strongly disliked for maintaining that position by the world. They will say, oh, what are you saying? Someone like Mother Teresa, you know, is not, yeah, if she's telling people that they can find salvation in idols, then yeah, yeah, it's against her too. And they they really get upset with that. But that's what we're, we're handling here. God's grace and love are taught By the Lord, in Luke chapter 15, three parables stand out with God saying, this is love, this is grace, this is God loving you and reaching out for you. There's the lost coin, there's the lost sheep, and there's the lost child. And in each case, they are found. And the one that does the finding is the the owner, the father, uh, the shepherd, Of course, the woman with the lost coin, and uh, there's the son, the prodigal son, that uh, comes to his senses. Circumcision and the rites of Judaism found no coin, found no sheep, and found no child. Again, this is big stuff to us. If you take this away, what do you have? Judaism. That's what you have. That's why we want to understand it, make sure we understand Christianity. It is the work of Christ that gets me to heaven. 
and my accepting that work when it's offered to me. And so Jesus said, and they never forgot it. When Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. Luke 13. They never forgot it. Luke wrote it down. Because when you hear that word perish, it gets your attention. It's almost like yelling fire. I mean, it's a serious issue. We are either saved by ritual and good deeds, stacked up as merit points before God, or we are saved by grace, which depends on our receiving the work of Christ and the finished work. Are you taking this message to unbelievers? Or am I taking this message to unbelievers? Are we skilled in our faith enough to know that your good works will not save you? But if you are saved, you will do good works. We shall be saved in the same manner as they. What a remarkable statement. What a remarkable choice of words. It tells us about equal salvation. There aren't two standards. There's not one for the Jew, one for the Gentile. They're sympathetic to the Jews, and that comes out in the end. We'll get to that. Peter does not say they are saved like we Jews. But we are saved like those Gentiles. There's a lot of them didn't like that. They had to work through it. This is the last time we hear the voice of Peter in the book of Acts. Verse 12 now. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Where previously they said, well, they're avoided because they're not circumcised. But now, after Peter saying, hey, Cornelius wasn't circumcised, you all, you know what happened there. Verse 13 and after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Now, again, you know, I'm not a big fan of James. <laughs> but, I mean, he's, he's he, I mean, that's not to take away from him. It's just to be, deal with the facts. I don't think he had to say anything after Peter was finished. But on the other side, uh, after, after Barnabas, Port and Barnabas were silent now, they'd given their testimony. And this is James. This James is the eldest son of Joseph and Mary. This is their firstborn. That would make him a half-brother of Christ according to the flesh. And so James answered, men and brethren, listen to me. Now he probably senses a lingering reluctance. There are times I stand up here and I make points from the scripture and I know they're right. But I can sense resistance all the way from the pews in the back sometime. I can feel it. Hold it. There it is. No. <laughs> and I think James, and if you've ever done public speaking, you can sometimes sense, you know, animosity coming out from your audience. You can, you know, it's the way it is. Well, I think James sensed that, you know, there's, a, there's this reluctance to submit to the facts. They could not dispute them. Outwardly, they were behaving. Otherwise, why add to Peter's statements? Why not just say, the meeting is now closed? So he says... Verse 14, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Why did he call him Simon or Simeon instead of Cephas or Peter? Well, Simeon was his pure Hebrew name. And James, sensitive enough to know he is speaking to very Hebrew people. These are the, the Judaizers. And so he, he, he sort of just, you know, speaks their language to them. And I think it's a wise move. I think James is very wise. And uh, the conclusion of this will just broadcast that for us. So he refers, James does, to Peter's testimony of God saving the Gentiles. And then James is going to say, and here's the scripture for it, which is a brilliant stroke. Uh, Verse 15, and with this word of the prophets, well, let me reread that, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Verse 16, after this, uh, after this, I will, boy, I'm really having a hard time reading. I think I need a donut. <laughs> Verse 16, after. This I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. 
He's using Old Testament scripture to seal New Testament teachings from Peter and New Testament uh, testimony. He's quoting Amos chapter 9. These guys studied up before they came into this meeting. How do you get such an arcane verse as this to apply to the situation? I mean, I would think of some other verses. But this one is like, really, James? You must have been in the books to come up with this one. And he's saying saving Gentiles does not mean that God is finished with Israel. God is going to do, he's going to rebuild Israel. There's going to be a messianic kingdom. What he is saying is the Gentiles will be saved before that kingdom is set up. And he's quoting Amos to demonstrate that. This is what Amos was talking about. He pointed out that Amos made no mention of Gentiles becoming Jewish converts before God establishes the Jewish Kingdom, the Messianic kingdom. If Gentiles can be saved without becoming Jews, when Messiah comes, there is no need for Gentiles to become Jews before Messiah comes. This is very good uh, logic behind it. Uh, verse 17. So that the rest of mankind may seek Yahweh, even the Gentiles who are called by my name, says Yahweh, who does all these things. I think, I have no question, the Holy Spirit pointed this out, verse out to James. And he's quoting it more than likely, uh, you know, from memory. Not likely he's going to bring out the scroll and thumb through it until he gets to, he's, he's quoting this. Uh, so Amos, the prophet, prophesied about the Messianic kingdom, which included a heart for the Gentiles. Well, where does that come from in the Bible? Before Amos, well, it comes from a lot of places, especially Isaiah, but Genesis chapter 12. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What part of all the families of the earth does not mean all the families of the earth? And how is that blessing so? That means God has made a way into heaven through Christ. And uh, those who hear the message and don't receive it, well, there are consequences to that. And those who receive the message, there are benefits to that. And so, again, uh, the Jewish believers should not fear what God was doing with the Gentiles by not making them Jewish. That is what James is saying. Verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. He says God is never random. He knows what he's doing. I love this verse in Isaiah. And you will too. That's prophetic. (laughs) For I am God. And there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. You know the name Michael means who's like God. It's, it's not a question. It's, 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 it's a statement. It's, it's like, pff, who's like God? Not you. Not anybody else. That's what that name means. Verse 9. Verse 19, therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from whom the Gentiles who are turning to God. From, from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Well, you know, you have a bad day at work. I don't think many people know about it. Me, it gets posted on the internet. Anyway. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. So James based his side of it on, on Scripture. In fact, he, he says, I side with Peter and Paul and Barnabas. This is the, the, the final blow. He says, God has got this, and we must neither fear nor interfere. Oh, man, what a lesson for Christians, right? When God is, the Holy Spirit is being God the Holy Spirit, we don't have to fear, and we better not interfere. But how many times do we interfere? Uh, Well, hopefully it's reduced as time goes on. You learn. You learn that, you know what, it's better if I just let this go. Even though there's going to be a fallout or problems, I'm going to follow the leading of the Spirit and be content with that. Verse 20, But that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Now, here's the gift of wisdom. We're seeing it in action. James says, this is settled. They're saved. However, now, in Acts 
at verse 28, which we won't get to this morning, he's, we read, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And so the conclusion is, God has given this wisdom and insight to the New Testament church. These are not laws for salvation. Make, make, make sure you understand this has nothing to do with salvation. The, the, this has everything to do with guidelines of sensitivity for or from the Gentiles to the Jews, Christians. Christian, Gentile Christians to Jewish Christians. Because their Jewish brethren, uh, they were still human and very sensitive to things. And uh, we're, we're at about salvation. It'd be a longer list, incidentally. So we want you to abstain from <laughs> a lot of things. But Gentile Christians should respect Jewish upbringing. You have a, the, the Jews were, were trained in this from their childhood, and to just go to them and say, "You know what? Uh, I want you to come over to my house, and I'm going to serve you some pork burgers or something that I got from the Idol Factory." <laughs> well, no Jew is going to be able to. Say, well, very few. Paul could say, "Well, just don't tell me the Idol part. But I'll eat it. Yeah, no problem." Later, Paul will instruct mature Christians about immature Christians and such things as food. And we're going to take the time to read, even though it takes a little guts this morning, looking at my track record, <laughs> 1 Corinthians 8. But food does not commend us to God. <laughs> Have you ever met a Christian that tried to tell you, we're dieting, you know, God's way. We're going back to Eden. You can't even find Eden. What are you talking about? And they're going to, you know, well, you know, if you eat this way, you live longer. Look, I know people eat pork living to 110 years old and they're still playing soccer. Okay, that's a stretch. The fact that I mentioned soccer is a stretch, but it makes me make it baseball next time. Anyway, coming back to this, but food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you, who having knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Okay, I don't want to turn this into an exposition of Corinthians right now, but Paul is saying this. You, you stronger Christians, you know, down at the idol temple, they butcher so much meat, they don't want to throw it away after it's, it's you know, been used in their rituals and some have taken it home. They have this excess. I mean, a, a big cow gives a lot of meat. So they opened up uh, butcher shops and it would sell the meat. And the Gentile Christians who were around this stuff all their lives, they get saved in Christ. But to them, it's still just a butcher shop. The fact that they offered it to idols, that's their business. I'm not offering it to idols. I don't want to eat the beef. So... A younger Christian comes along, immature, sees the mature Christian doing this, and thinks, thinks that the mature Christian is somehow endorsing the idol temple by eating that meat. And then they go in and, and want to say, well, I'm a Christian, but I can still offer idols, you know, to idols, my old religion. And Paul is saying, you got to clean that up. You can't do that. If eating meat makes my brother stumble, I will not eat meat again. And so we have the same thing here with the Jews. The, uh, James and the apostles are saying, be sensitive to their upbringing. These people, will, they had learned to hate idols and things offered to them. They had to go to Babylon to find that out. So let me open a little more. They are to abstain from things polluted by idols. Uh, again, idolatry became repulsive to them. Uh, the Gentiles, not as sensitive, having been around it, and the request asks for a little sensitivity. You, do you think that the Jews, his conscience is just going to agree with you because you've been raised with it? Things strangled. Well, the Gentiles, they preferred the flavor of the meat if you killed the animal without bleeding it first. They felt that, well, the meat's really good. You know, it's the taste of the blood in the meat. Uh, so rather than cut its throat, they would strangle it instead. And you can refer to 1 Corinthians 10 on that. Sexual immorality. 
Well, of course, a level of sexual immorality is covered in the Ten Commandments, which we Christians are subject to, with the exception of the Sabbath, because it's not uh, ratified in the New Testament, the only one of the, of the nine, of the ten. <laughs> it is nine Ten Commandments. <laughs> There's only nine. Anyway, uh, I think this has to do with the Gentiles who may have either flaunted their polygamy because many of them had multiple wives, and they come to Christ. Well, they kept their wives, or else the church would have been charged with breaking families up. And so this was a difficult time for the Apostle Paul to come in here and sort all this out and, and maintain the, the, the purity of the faith. The Jews would be recoiling at this stuff. The Gentiles had no problem with um, copulation out of marriage, but the, the church does. And so there's this clash of cultures that uh, had to be addressed. And so the apostle says, hey, if you got, you know, don't, don't go promoting this stuff around the Jews. Well, I've got five wives. You should try it out yourself. Uh, that would be a, a stretch, but that's the idea. Anyway, uh, remember, the Gentile converts were smoldering with the, the unbelieving culture of the world when they became Christians. He says eating blood. Now, some things are just wrong. I, growing up as a family, they would make blood pudding. I don't know what was in it, but just the name is, is foul. And I, there's no way you get me to eat it. Now, some of you might have eat, had it, and, and, you know, I'm not saying it's a sin. But the Bible is, no. <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me get to this. Leviticus 17, whatever man of the house of Israel, whatever man of the house of Israel, or the strangers who dwell among you, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I will cut him off from among the, his people. Okay, the New Testament comes along and says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are edifying for me. And I will not be brought under the power of any. So there's, there's more to it than just the raw law. However, we get the mind of God on eating blood. And Paul knew these were not commandments but they were intended to soften the blow of the conscience in the Jews as the Gentiles flooded into the church. 1 Corinthians 9, To the weak I become as weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. He's not saying, I sin because that helps people come to Christ. Or I, I toss away... This, the idea of, we talked about this Wednesday, things being sacred. There are some young men especially, I think, are more prone to this, but they want to act like there's nothing sacred. All's cool. Some things should be sacred to you. Some practices should be avoided by you. There are some things you, you should not want to go, you know, um, uh, blow bubbles in the sanctuary of your church because you think it's cool or you're trying to demonstrate that uh, you know, see, it's not a sin to do anything, uh, whatever. I hope you're following. We're running out of time, so I'm speeding it up. It is not cool to be sacrilegious. And you and I both know, as we read our New Testament, what becomes sacred to Christ. We don't make jokes about the Holy Spirit. We don't take the cross lightly. These things are sacred to us, and we should uh, communicate that to the world rather than saying to the world, see, you know, we Christians don't have hang-ups. Yeah, we do have some hang-ups. We have quite a few of them. One of them is we don't like see, seeing people go to hell. That's a hang-up I have. You want to fault me for it? Well, you're probably going to go to hell for that. <laughs> no, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not. <laughs> Verse 21 for Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And so he says, listen, there are Jews everywhere. And if you, you can't just live this way and not expect human nature to become a problem because Satan's going to use it. And so in closing, Acts chapter 15, it's some, when they sum it up, he says, if you keep yourself from these, you will fare well. Otherwise, you're going to have problems. And then we'll close with Galatians 
to prove that Paul understood liberty, but he also understood responsibility and the laws of, the, of God. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let's pray. Our Father, it was pretty intense in those days for a man like Paul to stand up and go against the flow, to introduce ideas and concepts that were true and very unpopular. He made many enemies continuously, but he felt you were worth it. You were worthy of the suffering that he endured at the hands of many of these people because the salvation of souls costs blood. It costs pain and hurt. It costs the price of forgiving the enemies who interfere with all the things that are special to you. May we look at these lessons and learn. May we learn how to serve you May this heighten our sense of seriousness in applying our faith. If you've been listening and you've not opened your heart to Christ, the fact is, according to God, you are dead in your sins. God has decided man needs a Savior. That Savior is Jesus Christ and there is no other. No one else died to take your punishment. No one else is good enough to die to take your punishment. And no one else is mighty enough to rise again and demand that it is so. Christ is all these things. You have to come to Him. If you want to receive salvation, then ask God into your heart. If you make this prayer with me, God will receive you. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your laws. I have barred myself from heaven. And I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to take the penalties away. I give my life to you right here and right now. From this day forward, I ask that I would be to you, your servant. And you would be to me the Savior of my soul and the Lord over my life. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning... May they not back away from it, and we ask you in Jesus' name, amen.